0: There are two people who don't know him. <laughs> so uh, welcome. This is the fourth and final treasure seminar of Hillary term. We've had two speakers who are Tibet specialists and two who are non-Tibetological anthropologists, but with something to say about treasure discovery. The first of those was Charles Stewart, who gave us a remarkable account of the new anthropology of history that he's built around his work on treasure discovery in modern Greece and Bulgaria elsewhere, and that's been very well received. Then we had Catherine Hardy, who spoke about uh, the Vajrasattva treasures of Kempo Jikpun in Tibet, and how they were used to draw Chinese students into Tibetan Buddhism. Then we had Ranit yuelin who you might know, and she spoke about themes of treasure recovery in, across a wide part of the world. And now I'm delighted to welcome the second of our non-Tibetological anthropologist, Dr. Pierce Kelly, from the Max Planck Institute for the Science of Human History in Jena, where he's part of the Minds and Traditions research group that explores the origins and evolution of graphic codes. And Pierre's research interest mainly focuses on language, writing systems, and creative agency. In particular, his interest in the varied ways in which speakers invent or manipulate symbolic systems to adapt to change circumstances. And at the Mint Research Group, he's exploring a number of recent writing systems invented by virtually non literate small scale societies in West Africa and the Asia Pacific, several of which are revealed by visionary methods. And uh, that's of great interest to Himalayan uh, and Tibetan studies people because we find similar phenomena several times in the Himalayas and in Tibet. And Piers is also curator and founder of the Australian Message Message Sticks Database which is a repository in progress of all known message sticks located in museums around the world and we're really delighted that he was able to visit the Pitt Rivers Museum uh, during his current visit and study the message sticks there. And among many articles Piers is author of The Art of Not Being Legible. Invented writing systems as technologies of resistance in mainland Southeast Asia, and also of excavating a hidden bell story from the Philippines, a revised narrative of cultural linguistic loss and recuperation. And it was in reading those articles that we thought we'd better invite you, because uh, this rang so many bells, no pun intended, <laughs> with uh, many things that happened in Tibet and the Himalaya. So, Thanks Thanks very much,
1: Rob. And thank you all for coming on the last day of term at five o'clock when you could be in the pub. Um, So today I'm going to be talking about a centuries-old treasure-hunting tradition from the Philippines, and I'm going to focus on how the tradition is expressed in folklore. Um, But I, I also want to look at how it plays out in everyday life and events. I really love folklore. I see it as A dynamic tradition is something that's not just um, narrated, but it's enacted and reenacted and reinvented. Um, And folklore is sometimes invoke a distinction between uh, legends, which are assumed to be uh, myths, which are stories that are understood to be fanciful by their narrators and their listeners, and legends, which um, are at least purported to be based on um, historical events. And the audience is invited to believe. I'm gonna be exploring some of the grey areas between these categories, and perhaps raise a few issues for, a few methodological issues for oral historiography. Um, So if you've been attending the treasure series so far, you'll be aware that um, treasure hunting traditions are a global phenomenon, but not necessarily a well-known or well-understood one. Um, In many of the stories that I'm gonna describe, the protagonists are rarely on active quests for specific objects. Um, instead, the, the discovery of treasure is often haphazard or guided by outside forces, and I think this is also how scholars come to treasure traditions too. We don't go looking for them, we kind of fall into them um, sideways. Um, my own folklore or origin story for why I'm interested in um, this topic is that some years ago I was doing my best to try to document um, a minority language of the southern Philippines. And in the process, I became very interested in how the speakers of this language historicized their language, the stories they told to explain the origins of the language. And while I was uh, drawing out these stories and eliciting more stories, I came across a sub of lost treasure narratives. Um, and I... Um, yeah, and the more I learnt about them, the more I realised that these treasure narratives were part of much wider narrative networks. Um, so I want to start with a news story that broke a, a couple of years ago and which I was invited to comment on by no lesser journalistic authority than the Daily Mail. Um, so I'll, I'll let you read that very long, very Googleable, keyworded um, headline there. And if you're wondering where I am... Um, I'm, I'm some experts over there, that's me. I'm representing some experts. Um, so this piece emerged in response to, a, this piece was written in response to a video that was circulated online of Filipino divers apparently uncovering gold bars in, in a cave and these bars were, um, were dramatically rigged up to explosives. And I will play the video if I can, because it's super short. The divers are in the cave, they uncover these gold bars, they speak to each other, Um, it goes for about 12 seconds. Um, But if you go online, you'll discover that these kinds of stories are relatively regular in the Philippines. People are always um, purporting to, looking for treasure, purporting to find treasure, but the treasure never seems to materialise in any public way. Um, And just like in the video that I would have showed you, the locations are always sort of Um, fuzzy. Um, So I'm occasionally brought in to be the boring old sceptic whose job it is to pour scorn on on these stories. And I think it's a shame because I don't necessarily find them silly. I think um, the predictable rediscovery of lost treasure in the Philippines is something I find immensely interesting from a folkloristic perspective. But the persistence of the the story um, can have negative consequences, and I'll talk briefly about the dark side of treasure hunting. But um, I wanted to show you the video because I wanted to argue that these things are kind of modern as well. This is a sort of a, uh, a digital versions of narrative cycles that have been retold for quite some time. Um, and I'm going to be arguing that treasure is sought and found, or imagined to be found, because it helps to explain the colonial predicament in some way. Resources are unjustly extracted by foreign powers, and then kept in trust by the landscape, but they can be recovered by the right person with the right motives and it 's the promise of potential reward and moral redemption that gives lost treasures persistent appeal that 's what I want to argue so i 've done some very minor and opportunistic documentation of Filipino folklore in southeast Bahol, which is um, this island over here and there 's the southeast. Um, but most of what I know uh, i 've learnt of uh, folklore has been from documentation produced by others in published and unpublished archives. Um, so, I just want to give you a bit of background about this documentation. So, Filipino folklore became uh, an object of scholarly interest in the late 19th century, and this is a time um, of great intellectual ferment in the Philippines. It's when a, a, a middle class cohered for the first time an educated middle, middle class, a merchant class. They went to Spain to be educated. Um, They were referred to as the Ilustrados, and they um, wrote novels and plays and painted paintings that elevated uh, and glorified native Filipino culture. And another thing that they did was they began to document folklore. Um, And uh, I might have some examples of this. There it is. and this is this folklore, often documented um, in Spanish or translated into Spanish, um, has formed part of my informal corpus. And these documentation efforts that began in the late 19th century kind of continued up until the 1950s, so just into the post-American era. So this is the core period of documenting folklore. It's hard to squarely define the scope and character of traditional Filipino folklore, but it is, as you might imagine, a largely oral genre, It was um, developed and circulated by a mostly non-literate working class, and the stories themselves really um, emphasize working class um, values and aspirations of their time. And I certainly see it as a post-contact genre that's distinct from the very formal epic poetry that's still performed and transmitted by cultural minorities in the highlands of Luzon and Mindanao, in the very north and and south of the country. And having said that, there's not always a very clear dividing line because Filipino folklore occasionally incorporates some of the um, gods and monsters and tricksters and lovers and heroes that we meet in the Highland epics, in the pre-contact epics. Uh, But at the same time, it takes on many more of the tropes of European folklore. We encounter, for example, Snow White and Cinderella, and we get stories that hew quite closely to Spanish romantic ballads. and there's an influence from Malay and Indian narratives, so it's very hybridised, and I'm afraid I'm not going to be talking about that so much, Rob, because I don't know um, about it. Um, so, And while this the, the Highland epic poetry is a, a highly structured, it's a metered genre, and it can take days to perform, folklore has no con- canonical recitation form. Uh, it's much shorter, and anyone can narrate it. So I'm defining folklore as a vernacular non-specialist narrative tradition and I've collected uh, a very informal corpus of around 4,000 pages from published and unpublished sources in um, Spanish and English and Philippine languages. So it's important to point out that Filipino folklore is not really um, circulated widely as a vernacular storytelling tradition anymore, Um, but it has found a second home in popular culture so I'll, I'll show you some stills from television advertisements. This one on the left is showing the, um, the trope of the old lady with the white hair who was transformed into the young lady with the white hair who grants wishes. Um, on the right-hand side is stills from uh, well, it's showing the motif of the coarse-headed demon that you can be transformed into. Um, and it's also selling you a, a blackberry there. Um, so, uh, oh yeah, advertisements for shampoo, for some reason, often feature um, folkloric themes. Well, not for some reason, because um, uh, disheveled hair is associated with um, evil. So um, shampoo can solve that problem for you and make you <laughs> laugh at the same time. Um, and Oh yeah, this is um, uh, stills from a television ad for uh, nail polish featuring the us one. It's a little bit hard to see here. But the um, really? Aswang is a terrifying woman who flies through the night. She cuts herself in half oh. and goes and um, tears out her intestines and eats them, and then she goes and joins back to her body the next morning. In this advertisement, she, um, her victim and her discover that they're wearing the same brand of nail polish, and they bond over that, and they do a little dance at the end. Um, but the that Aswang is a very kind of common motif. Shall we
0: try to the lights?
1: Oh, if that would... Yeah, maybe that would make it easier to see. This is probably the hardest slide to see, anyway. Um, okay. Okay, good. All right. Um, so there's some uh, just some films featuring uh, folkloric themes. So even though the oral narration of folklore is is relatively rare it's reinvented itself in these these other forms. So there are a range of um, genres or narrative types within Filipino folklore, other than treasure hunting. Um, There are, for example, creation and origin stories, heroic narratives, fables and animal stories, stories about magic and its consequences, trickster tales, religious parables. And I don't want to go into too much depth, depth, but I do just want to mention that treasure hunting is just one theme among many. Um, So how can we analyse the treasure hunting theme in Filipino folklore? Uh, I want to also point out that to speak of treasure hunting is a little misleading uh, here because the stories rarely rarely take the form of of a classical quest, as I mentioned. Rather, the treasure is something that comes under one's control or eludes one's control, so less of a quest and more of a struggle for um, control, struggle to claim or maintain authority over treasure. That's a running theme. And this struggle in my account takes place between um, supernatural entities, disempowered insiders and powerful outsiders. This is how I've broken it down. So supernatural entities, very often enchanted landscapes, um, but also ghosts and um, dwendis and encantos, which are forms of little people, um, disempowered but moral um, insiders, classical workers, farmers, um, often anti-colonial rebels, which I think is interesting and innocent children. Uh, and the powerful and immoral outsiders, pirates, priests, kings, colonial authorities, dictators, that sort of thing. And this is very much my own um, ad hoc taxonomy. Uh, And unfortunately, the the documentation of folklore in the Philippines, including by me, has suffered from a failure to describe emic analytic categories that would be natural to narrators and listeners. And um, I, I hope to do better next time now that I'm a bit more experienced. But at the very least, these are the three kinds of actors that we encounter again and again. And a basic structure of the stories is that we start with the disempowered insiders who are either innocent or at least trying to be virtuous in some way. And these are the protagonists that we, um, as as the listeners, as the audience, are expected to identify with and we're expected to learn from their successes and from their mistakes. Um, And the protagonists seek or appropriate treasure but access to it is mediated by a supernatural entity. So it looks something like this, this is the basic structure, the minimum narrative structure. It could be extended in, in various ways. For example, protagonists often have to demonstrate um, moral integrity in order to get rights to the treasure, and this could be in the form of demonstrating reciprocity, um, honesty, fairness, loyalty is a big one as well when it comes to treasure stories. When a powerful outsider is involved, it becomes a bit more complex um, and it turns into a three-way struggle. I will be describing some of these stories soon so that you can, so that this is not so abstract. Um, okay. So um, sometimes the treasure starts off in the hands of the powerful outsider and it's won by the insider with help from the supernatural entity. Um, or the treasure can be appropriated by the supernatural entity and withheld from both human actors. Um, Supernatural entities are typically the ultimate arbiter of who gets to have the treasure. Um, But they can be tricked, and they're not always completely good either. They can sometimes be selfish or vicious. And importantly, whenever treasure does not end up in the hands of the disempowered insider, it's presented as awaiting rediscovery in the future by... um, someone who is suitably virtuous. And that means it's gonna stay in the landscape until someone good comes along, the bad guys um, almost never get the treasure. We'll look at some examples where they do. So I'm gonna start by describing a few very simple treasure narratives that involve um, only the minimum structure of the um, disempowered protagonist and the supernatural entity. So there's a story recorded all over the Philippines about poor people who live near a cave And the cave is filled with fine plates and tableware. Whenever there's a wedding, the people go into the cave to borrow the plates, but they must always bring them back. And invariably someone forgets, or they break a plate, or the plates come back dirty, Um, and the cave mouth closes forever and the treasure disappears. And sometimes the cave will close with people inside it. Okay. Um, So... Here, oh, you can't really see that, unfortunately. Oh, no, you can. Okay, so I've just tried to um, plot where, within my little corpus, I've found examples of the cave and the plates treasure story. So um, this is a, a story in which an enchanted landscape has control over the treasure, Poor people who demonstrate virtue can gain access to it, and the access is withdrawn when the trust is violated. And there are variations of this story where only one virtuous person is granted um, access to wealth, whether it's in the form of plates or gold or anything else, from an enchanted being or a landscape, on the proviso that they keep it a secret or that they don't take too much, and they soon become much wealthier than everyone in the village, and this arouses suspicion. Uh, And in a moment of weakness, they reveal the true source of their wealth to a member of their family, and that causes them to lose everything and become poor again. Um, So Another kind of story is when ordinary people bury treasure uh, and die before passing on its location, and then the treasure then falls under the control of encantos, or duendes, these little people, and it can be rediscovered by means of house ghosts, or dreams, or disembodied voices, or white-coloured animals um, can lead them to the treasure. And white is a colour associated with wealth, power, and beauty, and to some extent it's associated with foreignness as well. Um, So in other stories, uh, treasure is guarded by monsters or the threat of sudden environmental catastrophes like floods and storms. And in some of these stories, we get hints of powerful outsiders who might be waiting in the wings to compete for the treasure. Um, And occasionally... Um, the treasure is also characterised as itself being foreign. So it can be described as um, goods from China, or from America, or from somewhere far away. Um, so I now want to introduce the, the, the powerful outsider into the equation. Here's a, uh, a story that was collected by um, uh, an American school teacher in 1908, and it's set during the Philippine-American War, which had just concluded six years earlier. Um, so, for those unfamiliar with the history, Philippine nationalists uh, declared the independence of the Philippines in 1896, which kicked off the, um, the Philippine Revolution, and um, then um, this resulted in war with Spain. The US entered the Philippines and allied itself with the nationalists, because at the time it was fighting the, uh, the Spanish-American War, but then having won the war, uh, America decided to keep the Philippines as a colonial Uh, possession, which they kept for another uh, 50 years or so. Um, But when they made that decision, um, this kicked off the Philippine-American War, which went on for another few years um, between Uh, which the Americans called the War of the Insurgency, but the Filipinos called it the Philippine-American War. So um, according to the narrator, this story is set during that last war, and it describes a tree in um, La Laguna that is covered in mysterious inscriptions in an unrecognised language that grows in front of a waterfall, this specific waterfall here in La Laguna. Um, And behind the waterfall lived a wealthy water spirit who was adorned with precious jewels and gold, And she had a servant and a golden cow and a golden centipede. And one day, a poor peasant girl went to wash her feet in the stream uh, when she encountered the water spirit. The spirit gave her money and golden jewellery with the injunction not to tell anybody where she got it. When the girl's mother eventually compelled her to tell the truth, her new treasure disappeared. After the Americans learned of the treasure in the cave, they tried to obtain it but were continually thwarted. Um, And this is how the story ends. So... Um, Today, whenever an American or any foreigner goes there, even if it be William H. Taft, who was then the governor of the um, Philippines, um, it rains heavily, although the sun shines brightly. So this is uh, a neat example, I think, of the treasure being awarded to the virtuous protagonist by a supernatural agent, withdrawn again because of a failure to maintain loyalty, um, but then also withheld from powerful interlopers. And the war doesn't enter into the story at all. but the narrator insists that this is the context for understanding it. Um, and I think we can think about this story as trying to draw attention to who has rights to what resources and what terms. Um, and I want to now recount a story that's set much earlier in pre-Spanish Manila. Um, and I'm abbreviating a great deal, but it goes roughly like this. In the village that would one day become Manila, there was a golden idol of the indigenous sky god, Captán, that people journeyed for miles around to worship. Um, One day, Muslim pirates, um, this is from an illustrated version, uh, from the south, came to raid the village for slaves. The people gathered up all their gold, including the statue of Kaptan, to offer to the pirates as an appeasement. A messenger rode out to the pirates with the treasure, but the pirate captain, who wanted only slaves, rejected the offer, casting all the treasure and the messenger into the water. At that moment, the sky grew black. The messenger was plucked to safety by invisible hands, and a shower of silver fire rained on the pirate fleet which sank into the harbour. When the people returned to their temple, they discovered the idol of Kaptan was back in its former place, now adorned with the rest of the lost treasure um, that had earlier been offered to the attackers. And it is told that the silver phosphorus visible in the bay at night uh, is a reminder of Cupdown's silver fire that saved the village. So this is a story where it's easy to identify all the players, um, the disempowered indigenous insiders who are at first controlling the treasure, the powerful outsiders who dispose of it in the sea and the supernatural entity operating through an enchanted landscape, uh, who ultimately saves the villagers and restores the treasure to its rightful owner. And this story prefigures, I think, what I, what I call the Lost Bell Cycle, uh, that Rob mentioned before. So in Bihal, I, I documented a story about a silver bell um, that belonged to the native people of the island. It's also described as a white bell, so that white comes up again. Um, uh, until, until the Spanish priests requisitioned it and hoisted it into the bell tower of their own church. Then in an act of daring, the bell was reclaimed by the people who sunk it into a river so that the Spanish could never get hold of it again. Um, And in a variant, it's the 17th century rebel Tumblot, who had first been offered the bell by the Spanish as a gift, but then a priest came to take it back and install it in the church, prompting Tumblot to sink it in the river with the aid of an enchanted bird. Um, This is where I've recorded bell stories. Uh, Not personally recorded, um, but that that exist in the documentation. I have recorded them in Bohol. and there is a picture of it a, from a house um, that I visited in Bohol of the enchanted bird helping to dispose of the bell. And the story concludes that at dusk, you can sometimes see the silver, bird, uh, silver bell glinting under the water. And there's a prohibition against trying to raise it again. If it's raised by someone who's not sufficiently patriotic, um, then a flood would ensue. So I later came across um, versions of this lost bell story from other parts of the Philippines. Um, so there, Um, and the role of powerful outsiders is played either by Spanish priests or Muslim pirates, and the enchanted landscapes do the job of withholding the bell or directing it into the hands of um, the rightful owners. So in Bicol, which is over here, the bell was um, sunk into a lake to protect it from pirates, but when the pirates um, had gone, they tried to get the bell back, and it provoked a storm, and the bell was being protected by a giant eel. Um, and um, we're also in Mindoro Oriental, over here. The story is that it was a golden bell, a pure golden bell. The pirates came, they buried it, um, but when the pirates left, they couldn't remember where they buried the bell. And um, then a boy was walking through the forest, and he encountered a tree, Um, a copper tree which has bell shaped fruits and that signaled the location of the bell so they're able to get back again. Um, Okay. So there's another story that the bell of the church of San Francisco de Manila, uh, which is here, um, was one day found floating in the bay and all the Spanish religious orders gathered to help bring it to land. But despite the small size of the bell, it proved too heavy, and only when the clergy had left the scene were the native Filipinos able to lift it with surprising ease. Um, and interestingly, this church, along with its bell, I presume, are now uh, lost in the bombing of Manila in World War II. Um, so clearly we can say that these bells operate as kind of tokens of rightful ownership, but also of religious truth and justice and all of those sorts of things. But for the people that I interviewed in Behold, this is not a, a metaphor, this is a literal Bell. This is, they're insisting it's a literal bell. It is somewhere it's going to be discovered by the right person at the right time. And just by way of illustrating how the story infiltrates lived experience, in the 1930s, Bohol's um, provincial governor, uh, who himself had documented folklore, um, which is in the corpus, he went. He, he put together an expedition to go and raise the bell from the river from where it was presumed to lie at the confluence of two rivers. Um, and in the 1980s, a local engineer went looking for it in, in a cave. And I also interviewed this engineer about his experience looking for the bell. Um, there are um, more stories that I could tell like this, um, but I, I guess what I want to draw your attention to is the way that the... Folklore sinks into everyday life and informs historical consciousness. Um, and in fact, just the other day I found this news story, this recent news story, um, about uh, the return of uh, repatriation of bells that were taken as war booty from during the Philippine-American War, and they've just been returned to the Philippines. But I've also encountered stories in the, period, the war period, or just after the Philippine-American War, of people stealing each other's bells. Um, and there was a counterfor- uh, counterformation movement at the time, um, break away from the Catholic church just after the revolution. So there, were, there was, a, bells were in contention. Um, so, so there's, there's a strong sense throughout that colonizers are appropriating wealth unfairly. They come undone and lose it into a landscape and it can be retrieved. <coughs> Excuse me. So this brings me to uh, the mother of all treasure cycles in the Philippines, which is the story of Yamashita's gold. Um, And this story is so well diffused that um, I I think it's fair to say that there's no single person in the Philippines who is untouched by it in some way. Everyone seems to have a Yamashita story. It's a sprawling, uh, complicated, and intertextual narrative with so many little nodes that I, I even hesitate to describe it as a Philippine Filipino tradition, given that a lot of its uh, most recent impetus has come from the United States. Um, So, the birth of the legend was after World War II, so it's after this primary documentation period, but we'll see that it has clear antecedents in earlier times. So, the story goes that during World War II, the Japanese Imperial Army appropriated millions in war bullion from the territories they occupied, and since the Japanese under the command of General Yamashita assumed that the Philippines would never be recaptured even after the war. Um, They decided to to hide it in the Philippines. Um, But at the close of the war, um, Allied and Filipino soldiers forced the, the Imperial Army to retreat in haste, leaving Yamashita's gold behind in secret tunnels all over the country. And these tunnels were constructed either by Japanese soldiers or Filipino slave labor, and they were closed with dynamite sealing the workers inside them so the secret wouldn't get out. Um, the story goes that Yamashita had a Filipino helper who was granted a small share of the wealth in exchange for his loyalty. He was entrusted with maps that had peculiar symbols on them that required a special code book to decipher. Um, and then during the Marcos regime, a poor farmer was plowing his field when he struck a giant uh, golden Buddha, which signaled uh, the location of one of the treasure deposits. And when the Marcoses found out about this, they um, they seized the Buddha, they seized the treasure, and they spirited it out of the country. Um, other treasure deposits were explored by the Marcoses under the cover of major public works, with the collusion of the Japanese government. Um, and at this story, the, the, uh, this point in the story becomes a kind of open-source choose-your-own-adventure um, <laughs> localised to different contexts. And every every medium-sized town in the Philippines has a variant of the um, Yamashita story that relates to that specific place. So, for example, there's a mountain in Bohol where um, Japanese soldiers are believed to have buried bars of Yamashita's gold, but those who search for them um, risk losing their lives. And once a group of American um, engineers plan to bulldoze the mountain to find the treasure, but then... Members of the team, one by one, mysteriously started dying, um, and so they called off the search for the for the, the for, for the project. Um, and there are there are more stories like this. And what interests me is that um, there's kind of echoes of what uh, Anna has been talking about with the, these landscapes that um, where the treasure must not be extracted, at least not by the right person, the wrong person. Um, and what Interest me is that this narrative doesn't begin with the historical Yamashita. It actually predates World War II, and it comes up especially in the aftermath of earlier wars and occupations. So the treasure of the 18th century, Rebel de Gorhoy, um, looted from Spanish churches, is also said to be buried somewhere, but it can only be found by someone who is prepared to use it to overthrow foreign occupiers. Um, and similar stories are, about, are told about the lost treasure of the 16th century, uh, Chinese pirate Limahong, said to be guarded by a mermaid. Um, And in a town in Bahol where I lived for a short while, the second wealthiest family in the town was uh, suspected to have got their wealth because they found a big barrel of um, silver dollars that were left over from... silver US dollars left over from the American occupation. Okay, Um, And that, yeah, and that accounted for their wealth. The cycle is quite consistent. A powerful figure amasses the treasure by violent or nefarious means. It resides in a protective landscape. And it's a risk of being reappropriated by other powerful figures. Um, and what we see here quite forcefully, I think, is this ambiguous boundary between legend and myth. Yamashita, uh, General Yamashita really did steal gold from the occupied territories, including from the Philippines itself. Um, Imelda and Ferdinand Marcos really were kleptocrats who stole resources and removed them from the country. Um, yet none of the other details of this story coincide with the orthodox historical record. Uh, instead, we get intertextual elements from folklore. And you might have spotted already that the theme of the generous caves filled with wealth that close again capriciously, the loyal servant who must keep faith, the supernatural landscapes that decide who is worthy, uh, and of course, the powerful and greedy antagonists. Um, and in my opinion, it's these folkloric aspects with their moral dimension that make the stories so compelling and so believable to the people who um, <coughs> narrate them. So, the anthropologist, <coughs> excuse me, Alex Borchkrevink, who did um, fieldwork in a village on the other side of Behol to where I was working, writes of the disruptive intrigues between actual or suspected treasure hunters in that village. So, usually, those suspected of looking for or finding treasure were um, not ordinary villagers, but relatively powerful or foreign figures, such as a Japanese reforestation crew, um, the local mayor, and Borchkrevink himself. So he writes, um, the theme of outsiders, particularly foreigners, looking for treasure under the cover of other purposes, and it was implied stealing it from the rightful owners, was recurrent in many treasure stories. Foreigners were seen as having clear advantages as the local people lacked the sophisticated equipment, like metal detectors seen as necessary for such searches. And this is the point at which the narrative uh, is so compelling and so reinforcing that it overwhelms reality. Um, Real and bitter arguments take place between and within families over imaginary treasure, and important archaeological sites are damaged beyond repair. So my archaeology colleagues in the Philippines uh, report that every single site that they have excavated uh, has eventually been looted by people looking specifically for Yamashita's gold. And this is another aspect of the dark side of the treasure hunting cycle. Um, I'm fascinated by the fact that... um, The Yamashita tale has now migrated to the US where it's been elaborated at great length by conspiracy theorists, pulp novelists uh, and con artists. Um, So on the left, there's a um, kind of a a long conspiracy theory manual. Uh, I won't give you all the details. Um, Suffice to say that the authors say in the beginning of this book that they've left um, clues everywhere in safe. So if they're bumped off by the CIA, then Um, the story can still remain. And this is a fictional account on the right-hand side. Um, There is currently a confidence trickster um, by the name of Jim Stuckey who resides in Manila and convinces American investors that he can help them find Yamashita's treasure. And this is from a story recently covered in the New Yorker Radio Hour. Uh, And Stuckey claims to have connections to the Marcos clan and he's managed to uh, so far extract millions from gullible investors who believe that Yamashita's treasure is guarded by highland indigenous people who will only reveal its whereabouts to those who are worthy or who bring the right investment. So um, this story is in new hands now. Um, But I want to conclude now by returning to what I think is a more, maybe a more positive side of the tradition. Uh, I'm impressed by the work of Shirley Aurora and George Foster who have discussed, um, quite some time ago have discussed similar treasure narratives from Mexico from a functionalist perspective that I'm uh, sympathetic to. So as in the Philippines, many of the Mexican stories are presumed by their narrators to be true accounts uh, and are sometimes associated, or often associated, with periods of political unrest, um, such as the Mexican Revolution. Um, Attempts at locating or retrieving treasure are mostly unsuccessful, but a few cases can always be found of inexplicably wealthy individuals who are said to have found treasure. Um, and the Mexican treasure is similarly predestined to be found by a rightful owner with misfortune awaiting undeserving claimants. So for Foster, um, these tales serve to maintain the economic worldview of static peasant economies since they quote can account for wealth that can be accounted for in no other manner um, and developing Foster 's economic interpretation, um, Shirley Aurora drew attention to the dimensions of personal morality and autobiographical reflection, wherein the failure to obtain treasure helps to, quote, mediate the disparity between um, aspirations and achievement, between what might have been and what actually is, making the failure, quote, understandable, tolerable, even acceptable to the narrator as well as to the audience. So in the Philippines, on the other hand, treasure-hunting folklore is much more explicitly, I think, about the colonial experience, um, about who has natural rights to what wealth and resources. And I think we see in these stories the the reenactment of a clash of cultures and economic systems that comes from the original uh, encounter between Filipinos and their often foreign uh, overlords and colonisers. And this clash brings about a reorganisation of once egalitarian or relatively egalitarian social structures into a new hierarchical but unstable arrangement. And history has shown that the peasants rarely, if ever, succeed within the new world order, just as nobody is um, seen to become wealthy through hard work and thrift, as promised. Um, but when these downtrodden protagonists enter into an alliance with the landscapes to which they have an intrinsic uh, connection and belonging, they can be offered sudden and spectacular reprieves. So in, um, in a paper I've analysed, the bell cycle is not merely an economic just-so story, but as a way of rationalising a perceived cultural deficit in terms of intangible cultural heritage. And in fact, the educated illustrators who began this process of documenting traditional folklore in the Philippines really wrestled with the sense that native Filipino culture was um, somehow inferior to Spanish culture and that this might explain how the Philippines became subservient to Spain. Um, And at the same time, the Filipino intelligentsia was... I'm convinced that the true glory of the Philippines was yet to be revealed, that there were past civilizations that had been forgotten or distorted by history or interrupted, or the true flowering of the Filipino civilization had been interrupted by the Spanish presence. Um, and personally, I'm, I'm somewhat sympathetic to this view too. Um, and I want to end with the, um, the sad case of the Ayub Cave in South Catabato, Mindanao, um, Uh, And Ayub Cave is named after Haji Ayub, um, the local warlord who has jurisdiction or had jurisdiction over this area. Um, And in May of 1991, it was said that a Japanese man visited Haji Ayub and convinced him that gold bars had been buried in the cave. The man sold Ayub a special code book of signs for treasure hunting. And with this information, Ayub decided to explore the cave um, and he discovered many important um, ancient artefacts, including these ones here, um, including pottery, which is decorated with hematite uh, and incised designs. But um, uh, Ayub interpreted these as, via his codebook as evidence that the real treasure was nearby, so he kept going. Um, and what he ended up doing was he bulldozed the entrance of the cave. This led to the collapse of the cave walls. Um, And in this way, the cave revoked its generosity and most of its true treasure in the form of pre-Hispanic pottery and human remains has been lost forever. Um, And I see this as a a tragic instance of misrecognition and a kind of an ironic one um, too. Um, As Haji Ayub enacted the the treasure cycle, he failed morally to recognise value uh, and the treasure was denied to him. So I think the landscape is still uh, waiting for its rightful heroes. Thank you.